Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast, and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated. It's real right away. So it's how just, about if I bring this back here? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Good, good, good. good. Yeah, you got to be able to relax. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, um, uh, I haven't followed boxing this last period. Yeah, you know, no. Ali was a, was a, a, a one of a kind. Right. I, I remember my dad and I used to watch the Friday night fights. It was on ABC. Right, before somebody died. I and I, we saw the, and I was rooting for Emil Griffith, uh-huh. who was one of my favorites, fighting Benny Kid Perret, and watched him kill him on R- television. Right. And it definitely uh, yeah. affects the way you look at these things. Yeah. Then I made the Ali exception, because he was like, you know, other than Martin Luther King, maybe like, the greatest American of his time, and then, yeah, but but I, I haven't followed boxing. You think 10, so? You think you think he was one of the greatest Americans of his generation? Yeah, yeah. Who died Turn, on TV? Benny Kid Perret. There was they, they used to be on ABC. This before cable, and it was just three networks. There was the fight of the week, and it was a big. My dad and I used to watch every every week, and they'd have championship fights sometimes. And mm-hmm. one week was, uh, I think, it was a welterweight championship. Emil Griffith. And Benny Kid Perret and Emil Griffith, um, I'm pretty sure was gay, right? You know, and 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 and, but in those days, nobody, you know, that was like a horrible thing to say about somebody, right? Especially I, for a boxer. And Benny Perret called him a faggot or something, uh, and Griffith uh, killed him. Wow! In the ring, you know, I mean, he was just now. It was the refs. The ref is supposed to fi- stop you know. it, but it's hard. Everyone, it's not the first or the last time that's happened. No. <clears throat> but but it was the first time I ever saw it happen. You yeah. know, it was on television. He n- never got up, and two days later, gone. Yeah, and I think they kept airing him on TV, and then Boom Boom Mancini, I think, killed somebody or something. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, but you it know, it just again. and then also cable comes along and it gravitates first to HBO, yeah. and then now it's extreme fight, whatever. But it, it yeah, it's uh, one of those things. Yeah. But well, that like talks about you wrote that book. I was just listening to some of your interviews about uh, the Lost Chord. Oh yeah, yeah, in the sixties, yeah, sixty-seven, yeah. yeah, and how important that was to you. Yeah, yeah, and um, I guess that make Ali makes me think of that because that's when he right. Went no, to he prison. was uh, he was a, a big a huge. That was the year. I mean, 1967, I wrote the book, first of all, because it was like coming up on the 50th anniversary of Summer of Love. It was published in 2017. Right. And, I, and, and I've been obsessed with the 60s for most of my life, but that seemed like the right time to do it. And it was the year I graduated from high school, so mm-hmm. it had kind of a personal thing. But so much happened that year. And one of the things that happened that year was that was the year that Ali was stripped of his title because he said that he wouldn't uh, right. go to Vietnam, wouldn't accept right. the draft and, and was uh, eventually indicted. So that was one of like 15 big things that happened in 67. Yeah. That's uh, is that how you got into where you are now? You think a product of your time? I think it uh, had a big influence. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I was uh, not a very good student. I always thought I was smart, but none of the teachers thought I was smart. So mm-hmm. I did the, you, you know, and then when when um, marijuana came along and, uh, you know, records like Rubber Soul and Out of Our Heads and Highway 61 and the Vietnam protest and 
you know, the whole idea of hippies, it was like I suddenly, the, the difference between 10th grade and 11th grade, I mean, in 10th grade I had like one friend and 11th grade right. I had like, I was part of a group of 15 or 20 people that like were going to reinvent the, the world. So that so-called counterculture, late 60s thing, you know, really inspired me. And uh, certainly rock and roll was a big part of it. And then, you know, within a couple of years, I stumbled into the music business because I found out you could make a living even if you didn't play an instrument. So, yeah, I, I, I think the 60s counterculture was a big effect on the rest of my life to this day. Yeah. Yeah, and you took acid for the first time in that. I in took high acid school? in high school. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I took it for the first time in '66. Yeah, eleventh grade. And know. then, what music were you into? Beatles. And I was that? into um, the the, uh, the the famous ones: the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan. Dylan was my favorite then. He mm -hmm. still is my favorite. Yeah, he's my favorite too. Uh, you know, I liked <laughs> blues. You know, um, it was a part of being cool was to like Muddy Waters, Helen Wolf, mm -hmm. uh, and the Lightning, Stones. Lightning Hopkins, and you know, of course, the Stones, Beatles. I liked Love and Spoonful. I loved. They were one of my favorites. Um, mm -hmm. Rascals had some really good songs. They weren't quite as cool, but they had some great records that, yeah. that, that, that we would play. I just think of what we'd play at parties. Cream was huge. They only made a few records, right. and Clapton, the rest of Clapton's career has been so important that people forget. But at that time, Cream was like, it was Beatles, Stones, Cream, Cream, you know, yeah. in terms of every party you would go to, Disraeli Gears was, was playing. Yeah. The wah-wah pedal and the SG Clapton played then. Yeah. And yeah. it was just amazing. And you know, I don't know anything about that guy Jack Bruce, who was the singer and the bass player, and he didn't have a big illustrious career like Clapton. But he was the lead singer of he was, Cream, he was and he had a conviction that was like exciting yeah. on those records. Uh huh. That's true. Great bass player too. Had to be, you know, something about a three-piece. And then Ginger Baker invented the idea of a star drummer. There's right. no John Bonham without Ginger Baker. That's interesting. Yeah, he just passed away too. I guess. I think he did, yeah. 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 Did you see that documentary? Incredible! About oh my goodness, what a what a documentary! Yeah, that's it's, wild. Yeah, I never met him, but but that's one of the best music documentaries because it's just so raw, you know. So mm -hmm. he just obviously aftermath. was totally unfiltered, you know. Yeah, punched the guy right. Right, who made the documentary. Yeah, and just the aftermath of a of a music career, and then like you know, even if it's successful. What that maybe does to your ego and twists you up in kind of different ways. It's hard to survive this kind of thing, I think, in a way that's healthy. Well, it has an effect on people. I mean, I, I my guess is he was pretty wacky before he was in Cream. I mean, I don't yeah. think being successful makes you that way. No. It, it it just it it can distort. I mean, it's part of the thing about being successful. You know, I think about this a lot. Obviously, with the people I've worked with, and some of them aren't here anymore. Part of it is it, it magnifies like certain madness, but it also, if your whole thing is I want to be successful, I want to be successful, yeah. and that'll make me happy, and then you get all the success and yeah. you're still unhappy, like now what do I do? Yeah, you know now what's the drug? You know I tried all the physical drugs. Now the drug of success, the most elusive thing. I got the brass ring, and I don't feel that much better when I go to bed or wake up. Right. That's a, that's a that's also a thing. You know, is that like that old corny Peggy Lee song? Is that all there is? Right. You know, I don't know the song, but yeah, I relate to the song. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm quite lucky in that way that success has eluded me <laughs> because it's made me dive deep into other things that have brought me, 
you know, I mean, like I do a regular yoga practice yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And that, that does give you a satisfaction on a daily basis if you remain disciplined. Totally. It's, you know? it's huge to not just identify with whatever scorecard it is. Yeah. How much money do you have? What parties you invited to? How famous are you? Or, right. You know, uh, but if you could get define yourself as a soul and not just, as Ramdas says, you know, one of my, as, as, yeah. as in terms of your soul and not in terms of your role, better better uh, long-term uh, strategy for not hating yourself that's right and you and that's the thing about you you're kind of an interesting conglomeration of things you know like you're also a Bo- are you still a buddhist or i never you, was a buddhist, not a buddhist but- you know i i i um i was inspired because of psychedelics right and the feeling that there's something bigger than this physical body and this linear reality yeah uh you know and then um uh, uh around the time i was doing psychedelics was around the time that george harrison started writing no, and she... singing and talking about hindu traditions mm-hmm. which was his you know first they were into the maharishi and then later the krishna um, consciousness guy Swami Bhaktivedanta and then a couple of years later Ram Das published that book I mean Richard Alpert was one of the popularizers along with Tim Leary of LSD in the 60s he, they were both Harvard professors Richard and, Alpert that's a Ram Das and then Richard it? Alpert goes to India oh. changes his name to Ram Das okay, yeah. and writes this book called Be Here Now right, which, which is, is published in 1970 and by that time I completely stopped taking drugs I got in trouble by the time I was 18 and like just stopped everything because I didn't want to like self-destruct how'd you get into trouble um i was stoned and uh in my pocket were second alls methadrine needles and a 38 derringer (laughs) holy shit you you were no no dude you were getting getting into it i didn't realize that i thought you took a little acid smoked a bit of weed thought you were out there and that was the end i was in uh uh uh, i was in uh, berkeley uh uh, somewhere near berkeley might have been Oakland, you know in in north California. And and um, and I uh, I, I was uh, I asked the cop for directions. Holy shit! Which was you think I wanted to get caught? Possibly. Yeah, like so, if you psychoanalyzed it. Yeah. So so I spent five. I was I was seventeen. I was wow. lucky. It was just six weeks before my eighteenth birthday. So I spent five days in Alameda County Juvenile Hall, and nothing horrible happened. No one raped me. No one beat me up. But boy, I never wanted to be in that situation yeah, again. Yeah, fuck that. I was like, I never want to have to ask permission to go to the bathroom or like, right. like feel this way. So That's it made me question, what what is what is this all about? And you know, there's some kind of, I had to go to this group therapy thing as a condition of my release. And you know, I'm not a huge therapy guy, but that six months when I had to do that, it did help me. Um, I realized other people had problems. Right. It wasn't only me. I was like, it was yeah. so surprised. That's the best thing about AA. Yeah. Is you go in there and it's like, oh, this is the human condition. Right. This is what it's about. Yeah. Everyone's dealing. So so I didn't, you know, once I fulfilled my obligation, I and, and I didn't do, since then I, I, I've been, I wouldn't say I'm 100%, I mean, especially with this legal cannabis era, mm-hmm. but I've been very, very, things. For decades, I don't even think I had a glass of wine, and then the last ten years I've loosened up slightly. But but I never, um, I never got out of control on any kind of drugs or anything like that after that because I yeah. was just uh, it was the uh, scared straight mm-hmm. cliche worked worked for, for for me. You scared yourself straight. So so, but I still remembered that psychedelic 
feeling uh-huh. and, and cherished it. I don't regret at all the psychedelics. I regret some of the other stuff. So when I read Ramdas's book, yeah. where he made the link between um, his psychedelic experiences, which were vast, mm. and his uh, decision that, like he, as he said, the problem was I kept coming down. You know, yeah, and 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 then then the meeting his uh, guru and everything like that. So that book, Be Here Now, is kind of like a um, a menu. It tells his personal story, but then he gives like kind of a dozen different spiritual books to read and different ideas. You don't have to member of one organization. I never joined up with an organization or anything like that. I just like the idea that there's many different paths to the same thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did kind of like the devotional Hindu lane a little better for me personally than the Buddhist one. I, I have friends that are Buddhist. It's yeah. the same thing. It's one truth. Right. But I, I, I identify more with kind of the, what they call the bhakti devotional side yeah. of Hinduism than with Buddhism. Hinduism's Buddhism's more of, a little abstract for me. Hinduism's more of a party. You know? I like Krishna. <laughs> like, I remember right, like, I was in I was in like, Central Park once around uh, you know after my drug period, but maybe before I read Ram Dass's book, yeah. and the Krishna people were there and they were dancing around. They had these horrible haircuts, this stupid top <laughs> knot, and the rest of their heads shaved, dancing around like I thought idiots. And they scared me because they felt culty to me, right. and I was never wanted to be in a cult. I was like that was one promise I made to mm-hmm. myself. But there was also a sweetness about them. And so this guy gave me a picture of, and and, and it said on the picture, it said, if you just say the word Krishna once with love, then for the rest of your life, you're, you're cool. And I said to myself, that's a pretty good deal. Right. You know, I can do it. <laughs> Let me try this. Yeah. And for all I know, that changed the rest of my life. Yeah. It certainly didn't hurt. Right. No, I, I, I agree with you there. I didn't join up any. Again, I didn't become a quote unquote Krishna person because yeah. I never, I didn't like organizations. It, it seemed incompatible with the idea of spirituality to me. Yeah. Which is to go beyond form and structure to suddenly join up where you have to do what somebody else is telling you. That never was my thing. But the idea of tuning into a, a more cosmic version of reality continues to. The older I get, the more it works. You know, the more you need it. The more you need it. I mean, that's what I found. You know, that's why I do the yoga every single day. Same thing. Yoga is part of the it's Hindu, yeah, put Hindu a cosmology. In. Yeah, it's a direct, yeah, it's part of the same thing. Yeah. The What were you doing with the gun? You know, when I went out to um, Berkeley. <laughs> you, I, I enrolled in the University of California, Berkeley, because yeah. I had mediocre grades, but good SATs. And in those days, if you had SATs over a certain number, you automatically got into Berkeley. Huh. And Berkeley had this kind of cool reputation. There had been protests there, and it was far away from New York, as far as away as I could get from my parents and still, you know. So I mean, I love my parents. I miss them. I wish they were still alive. But right. at that time, I didn't want them in my head. Yeah, you're at individuating. All. Yeah, like I'm individuating. That's like, healthy. Un- precisely. Yeah. So <laughs> I keep reminding myself of that relative to my kids who are now in their twenties. And individuating. And individuating. Yeah. But uh, you know, uh, believe me, they're nicer to me than I was to my parents. Yeah. But but um, and I so so me and a pal of mine from 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 high school shared an apartment. You didn't have to live in the dorms. And uh, we were right next door to these guys that were like Vietnam vets and bikers. Uh And they had great drugs. And they were great guys. And none of them were Jewish. They weren't intellectual. They were a totally different kind of person. But like we, we had 
okay. rock and roll and drugs in common. We mm-hmm. go to the film where this and that. And they all had guns. So they said, oh, man, New York. They used to call gun. me New York. Yeah. I had a nigga, New York, you got to get a gun. Come on. I said, man, I, no, no, we'll get you a cute little gun. It's good. We all have guns. You got to have a gun. So I never used it. Right. You just had one. I just had one because I was hanging out with that a bunch. That was the thing to do. Yeah. Did you know how to use it? Or is well, like, you pull back the thing and you, you pull, pull the trigger. trigger. One time I shot a thing into the wall of an apartment just to do it once. You know, oh, before we let, you know. Could have gone outside, I guess. Could've you know, we were, high. Tree, we, we, know. Were, we, we were high. Killed the guy next door. I know. <laughs> no, no, it was nobody next door. So, it was ridiculous. It was yeah, right. That's why uh, well, you were eighteen, st- not even. I was seventeen. Seventeen, yeah. yeah. So, so when did you figure out? Oh, I could do something in the music business that would be a career, or I could make some money here. And what was that thing? It was publicity, right? Well, it went in a few stages. The first thing that happened was I come back to New York because of the trouble I got into in California oh, so that, that I mentioned earlier. Fate, fate I'm staying in my parents' apartment in Westchester, going to this therapy thing, and um, I just I, I wanted to get my own apartment. So, um, so I looked in the New York Times. Of course, in those days, they had classified ads, help wanted, mm-hmm. and most of the jobs said key punch operator. That was like the equivalent of being a... a, 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 a Making keys? Writing code. No, it was the early pre-computer. Oh. Key punch operator was the predecessor to being like a code, code. writer. And I remember so I got... So uh, you, you had... So I got... Uh, I, I did an interview for one of those jobs for Sears Roebuck, and you had to pass a written test. The guy said, you know, and I, and he said, okay, you could start. And then there was another ad that said magazine, clerk wanted for magazine. Mm-hmm. So I'd like written for the high school newspaper. And in my mind, I, I was a writer and I liked the word magazine. And the magazine turned out to be Billboard. Mm. And I didn't know what Billboard was. There was no publicity then about the music business. I didn't know what record companies were. I just mm-hmm. thought they were artists and me and my friends and you'd go to the store. I didn't know there was a whole business connected to it right. until I saw this magazine, Billboard. And it's a whole magazine that was published every week just about the this business. business that I didn't even know existed. And um, and they and I got that that job and it was, uh, it was a job in what they called the chart department which was that in those days, um, the way they compiled the charts, they had eight of us in a room at desks um, calling stores all day long for four days a week. And then on the fifth day, it would all be compiled and they would announce the charts. So um, you'd, you'd have a checklist of singles and say, okay, are they selling heavy, medium, or light? So Janice, uh, Big Brother's uh, Piece of My Heart was out then. So. That was like my favorite, so I would I would say heavy, even if it wasn't really. That's heavy. what I was about to say. This would yeah. be easy to fake. Yeah. Oh like, no. This would be easy to influence. Yeah. No, I influenced it, uh, but, but not not corruptly. Nobody paid me up. I just cool. I love Janis Joplin. You did it from a soul I love level. Janis Joplin, soul level, and, <laughs> soul and, level and, corruption. And, and, and That's so, a song. Um, and then uh, that was uh, that was like October, I think, of '68. Then in December, the second week of December, um, what? This guy walks into the chart department. What happened is the promo guys, the guys that would work the records at radio stations, would come and schmooze the chart department just in case they would have any influence and they would tell their clown, oh, yeah, we visit a billboard. It was like part of the ritual. Come and shake, how you doing? How you doing? Yeah. And these promo guys were like Martians to me. They would wear these leisure suits. They would have like long hair, but it was coiffed. They didn't know. It was like half mafia, half hippie they, fashion that only was for promo guys. Right. They, they just looked like people... I didn't even know if they were even the same species. They must have tried to give you drugs but, and shit like that. But um, 
one thing, Lou Seliner, I remember the guy's name, was at Capitol Records, and he gave everybody in the department a free copy of the Beatles' White Album the mm-hmm. day it came out. And that was the day I said, I, I, I like this. Uh, you right. Know, that was like gold. You didn't. There's no free music. There's no Spotify yeah. or YouTube. That was like cash. No, I remember when I got my first record deal, went into a, like a... This, you know the company and got all the free CDs same thing it was like what the fuck yeah so <laughs> so I I just said to myself I gotta stay vinyl. I gotta vinyl. stay involved with this thing <laughs> yeah. and I say the same thing to myself every day for 50 years I gotta right. stay in this this is good right. how I, I don't know how I got here but I like this <laughs> then uh, by the next month I noticed I'm getting to know the other people in the office and seeing who else works there and there were these other people, and one of the guys had long hair, he wasn't that much older than me, mm-hmm. who got to go to shows for free, mm-hmm. and all he had to do was write his opinion of the show. Right. That's it. And I said, I That's could do that. I may right. have low self-esteem. <laughs> My English teacher may have thought I didn't write a good essay. <laughs> well, I could, I could, I could go to Fillmore and say what I think of Savoy Brown. You know, <laughs> I could do that. So I kept nagging them, and what happened yeah. is when one of the regular writers couldn't cover a show, they would let me do it, and I got paid extra. I was paid 30 cents an inch for each inch of print that was published, not what, not each that I wrote, but right. what they ended up publishing. So I'd make an extra 15, 20 bucks that week. And, and, and the first one came out and it said, by Daniel Goldberg. Uh-huh. And that was like, I existed. Right. I had a bot, like I could call people and, you know. And then, um, and then uh, this was early 69, and then in the summer of 69, Nobody wanted to go to Woodstock. All the older writers, the old guys, they were like 35. To me, that was like 100. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I was dead. And they were in a totally different cultural universe. They hated all the rock stuff. They liked to go like to the Copacabana. Their idea of a good assignment was where you got free drinks and free dinner. Yeah. So Woodstock appealed to none of the real a-list writers amazing so the editor came to me and said look no one wants to go do you want to go i said yeah wow. yeah I'm, I'm i'm cool i'll, I'll go yeah so i wrote I guess. That. there's drugs so i wrote the i was non-druggy then but i loved the music it was yeah. Jimi hendrix and you know it's unreal it was, did you see hendrix Woodstock. there i i i did he, I he went asleep. on at like four in the morning i was asleep, or some shit I, was like asleep. I saw him in the movie yeah <laughs> i i i i didn't but i saw right. uh so so um that was, uh, you know, uh, August of 69. And, uh, you know, just this last August, I wrote an article 50 years later. Being a, it's just incredible. Those experiences yeah, how for the whole rest of my life yeah. are part of what we would today call my brand just because yeah. I was there. So uh, so that was, uh, that was sort of it. I started as a quote, and then I was like, got to know there was this community of 50 or 60 people who wrote about rock and roll. Yeah. And, uh, you know, New York Times had somebody, there were a lot of magazines in those days, Changes and Fusion and Cream was just starting and the Rolling Stone writers and different people. And we all went to the same, every night there was like a press party. The record business was booming. So you never had to buy a meal. You'd go to these parties, you'd get the free food, you'd see the band, you'd see friends, you'd try to pick people up. That was my life, you know. I found a life suddenly, you know. Big one. And uh, again, that's still kind of to this day, is an extension of those uh, periods of, 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 of time. But after a period of a couple of years, 
it was obvious to me I couldn't make a living as a writer. I wasn't really disciplined enough or good enough. Well, 30 cents an inch or whatever that was. Or well, then I left. Well, no, I had a series it's of hard to make, It's hard to make rent with that. No, no. Then I had a full-time job <laughs> right. at Record that World. That was on top of it. Then Record World, a competing magazine, hired me, and I was a full-time writer. I didn't have to be in the chart department anymore. Mm. And that was, uh, that was a salary. I forget what it was, 200 right. a week, which is like 1000 a week today or something, yeah. you know. Uh, and then I and then Decent. I worked for Circus Magazine for a year, so I had a series of jobs that where I was, but but I hit a brick wall in terms of my writing career, and so uh, I became a publicist. So you were unafraid to adapt. That's one of the things. Well, I was afraid of being broke and having to ask my parents that, for money. That fear so, served so, you well, though. So that's what that's. I would say that was the main motivator. Yeah, <laughs> but it served me well. Yeah, that has served you well because yeah. you once told me that you write, write your books when you get that fear comes over you. Totally, and you start writing yeah. a book. Yeah, I, I've yeah. always remembered that. Oh, far out. Yeah, that is something I, I keep in my mind. Yeah. I'm like, when I get afraid, I'm like, I should be like Danny and write a book. Well, you something. do all the other. You paint. I, I know, but same. You, you, it, that fear serving me yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, no. you do. So you have more talents than I have. Well, That's the only thing I can do. You we'll can see. paint, you can sing, you can write music, you know. Yeah. I mean, podcaster, you know. But so and so then you switch to publicity. Or so how does that how do you make that leap? Well, I needed a what? job. I to me originally it was always like I looked down on publicists cuz we were writers. Uh -huh. And and but then I couldn't make then then after circus uh, went under. I no, I wanted to make some money. I got fi circus which was my previous job um they were a great magazine, and their archive is um, somewhere. But they were the only rock magazine that had color pictures uh -huh. in those days. And a lot of good writers wrote for them. Paul Nelson and uh, a lot of people that were also Rolling Stone writers would also write for, for Circus. Um, but but they, they hit financial problems, and, and they closed down for a period of time. I lost my job there, and I, um, I couldn't get another writing job. And I was uh, running out of money, so I begged all my friends, do you know of a job, do you know of a job, do you know of a job? And, and, um, and I was recommended uh, for a job at, um, at um, a PR company called Salters and Roskin. Mm -hmm. And Lee Salters was uh, an old school PR guy. Again, to me, he looked like 100 years old. He was probably 50 or 60. Right. You know, and he wanted a long-haired guy who, understood, who knew the rock press people. But their clients were like Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Ringling Brothers, Barman, Bailey Circus, 10 Broadway plays, Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, you know, those kind of clients. And they wanted somebody for this new growth area, rock, rock and roll. And, and, um, and so I interviewed for him and... And um, and he uh, he hired me in uh, at the beginning of 1973. Right. And um, and um, you know I learned how to be a publicist from him. We were different culturally, different generations. I don't think we had anything in common. But he was my boss, and he was a nice guy. I thought he was going to be like kind of a jerk, and he 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 could be a jerk, but. He, he taught me what it was to be a publicist and what the craftsmanship of it and the discipline of it. Because my idea was, I asked my friends for favors. That's what a publicist does. Yeah. But what, what he explained to me in his own way, I'm paraphrasing, was, you know, you only have a limited number of favors, but if you come, come up with a good story, you don't have to ask for a favor. It's about storytelling. Yeah, it's about storytelling. It's about that first, and he said, the most important thing in a press release is, is the first paragraph. Yeah. And the most important thing in the first paragraph is the first sentence. Right. And as obvious as that sounds, it was really, a, um, I still explain that to people to this day yeah. about just communicating 
I, I, ideas and and um, the craftsmanship and the work especially ethic. nowadays with the attention spans you gotta yeah. grab them fast. yeah but but even then the attention spans were not so great when yeah. you're a if you're an editor somewhere at the st louis post dispatch and you're getting in you know 50 press releases you, you know you know you're going through them pretty quickly right so um so that was in January of 73, and then in March or April, quite soon thereafter, maybe three months later, but I've had these three months of, of, of being in kind of the boot camp of the Salters and Roskin approach to publicity. Um, he said, uh, do we want this band Led Zeppelin? Mm -hmm. So I said, yeah, they're one of the biggest bands. He says, well, you better come with me to the meeting because I don't understand anything about that music. Was there other rock bands on the roster or was Zeppelin the first one? Uh, I think Zeppelin was the first. We had When I first got there, the first client he assigned me to work on was a jazz trumpeter named Stan Getz. Uh, yeah, well, he's amazing. He was amazing, yeah. yeah. So I did publicity for Stan Getz, but it was just a, a one-month thing. And then there was like Paul Anka... And there was a series of just they throw me excess normal music clients. I don't. Did you work with Sinatra? No. Okay. No, no, no. That was not uh, high enough in the pecking order to work yeah. with Sinatra. No, I got Stan Getz, Paul Anka. Uh, I can't remember two or three other things. They throw me sometimes. It'd be a movie, and and the movie guy was overloaded. So could you do Rip Torn's doing an interview with the Chelsea? For some new movie, could you, you go Rip there? Torn? I went once. I met him once. <laughs> you know, he's amazing. You know, my job was to pay what? for the Rest drinks. Yeah. That was <laughs> while he did the interview, which I was more than happy to do. That's fine. You know, so they just throw me whatever. I was the low man on the totem pole. But then for Zeppelin, he knew I was the only one that. Sh so 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 we flew to Paris. I'd never been to Europe. Yeah, you know, with him. To how uh, old are you here? Twenty-two. It's un incredible. Jesus. You're like Zelig. <laughs> Has anybody ever told you that before? Yeah, I've heard it before. Uh, you've yeah. got to have heard that yeah. before. That's, that's like, you know that Woody Allen movie, no. Zelig? Oh, oh you've like, never no, seen I mean, Zelig? Oh, uh, it's incredible. It's such a good movie. He's just I, everywhere in history that's relevant. Uh, this guy's like that in the music business. It's unbelievable. So um, I actually haven't seen Zelig for a long time. I yeah. might watch it again. Watch yeah, it's time to rewatch it. Yeah, time to rewatch yeah. it. It was... It was um, so, so you're uh, going to Europe. So we go to uh, Paris <laughs> right. and stayed at the Georges Sank Hotel because that's where Zeppelin and was staying. Were they, they were already pretty famous. They were hell. huge. No, they no, were no. huge. No, they, they were at their peak. Okay. Their, they, the previous album that they had made at the time I met them, their most recent album, yeah. was Led Zeppelin IV, wow, so they were which huge. had Stairway to Heaven on it. Yeah. So they were at their apex. Apex. And, and But they just to like let people know, the reason they were trying to hire the publicity department is because they were getting ravaged by the critics still, right? Wasn't well, what happened with Zeppelin... Um, is that they their first album came out in 69 i think and i was actually at billboard when their album came up and they happened to walk into the chart department and say hi we're led zeppelin and i didn't talk to them i was like hello you know right. and that was like this weird thing and what's led zeppelin and then like a month later it's like boom you know good times bad times and mm -hmm. all that sort of thing so the the um the rock press was made up of people of a certain age, mostly mid-20s. I was like, say, people five years older than me were sort of the, the, the taste makers, the Rolling Stone in particular writers. Mm -hmm. and But it wasn't only Rolling Stone, but they epitomized it. 
And they all loved, um, you know, the, uh, the cream and the blues and the earlier, you know, the Stones. And, and Zeppelin comes along, number one, as sort of being looked at as derivative, believe it or not, of cream, even though they far outshone cream ultimately musically. And secondly, by 69, FM radio had blossomed into this very powerful thing for the American rock audience. Earlier, in 67, there was no... Rock radio starts in 67. There was no such thing as an FM radio station that played rock and roll until 67. It was started in San Francisco by a guy named Tom Donahue. It got great ratings right away. And then by 68, by 69, there's no city, medium or big, in North America that doesn't have a, an FM station it's playing like rock, and, rock and roll. And it became later, it was called AOR, rock radio. Right. In the beginning, it was called underground radio, believe it or not. And so Zeppelin... A AOR, album-oriented radio. Yeah, that becomes the jargon by the mid-'70s. But in 69, it's just called underground radio. Right. And um, they came out exactly the right time. There's a guy at Atlantic named Mario Medius. Uh, whose nickname was the Big M, who Atlantic hired one guy. The Big M, get the Big M. Yeah, yeah. he was the first guy to ever do promotion at rock radio. Mm -hmm. And part of the mystique of Atlantic was the Big M, African-American guy, who, but who promoted rock and roll. And I, I interviewed him for one of my books about, um, I met him later, but I didn't know him then. I said, so what happened? He says, man, you know, I went to WBCN in Boston and they all hated Led Zeppelin because they liked the real blues. They liked Sonny Boy Williamson mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And I explained to them, I am the blues. Right. They were all these white boys. I'm, I'm told them that this is real. And J.J. Jackson, who was a black, one of the few black DJs on rock radio, yeah. first guy to play Led Zeppelin. And boom, they played it once and the phones go crazy. So within like two weeks... You know, Led Zeppelin's first album is like one of the best-selling albums in the country, and the rock critics had nothing to do with it. Right. Zero. So they went in. So they, they hated it, both generationally, because suddenly they were a little older. You know, when you're 25, you're a lot older than a 16-year-old. Yeah. You, you know, you're not young. Now you're the next generation. It's right. a shock it is. to not be that cutting edge anymore it happens really quickly it does you know you blink and it's gone you blink and it's gone <laughs> yeah. and so so they decided so all the reviews were bad and the same thing happened in england for other cultural reasons that i don't see in the press for same psychological reasons could be jealousy so it was jealousy was so amazing that it was it jealousy like, and they hadn't discovered it it right. was like it wasn't there you know and it wasn't theirs and and the fans were younger and they were like not into feeling old when you're 25. That's like, what is that all about? Mm. So for whatever reason, um, they got bad press. And so Jimmy Page, who was the first among equals in, in Zeppelin, and Peter Grant, their manager, decided, fuck the press. We just won't fucking talk to them. So for several years, they hardly ever did any interviews, would be rude to the press, wouldn't give them uh, uh, backstage passes, uh, were tough about giving anybody photo passes. They were like the rebels. Then a few years passed. They've, they've become commercially, the, literally the biggest rock band in the world. Their, their concert attendance and their record sales are now bigger than the Stones. Wow. And, um, and Robert Plant told me, because later on, after I was wrong, I said, why did you decide? He says, you know, I was tired of my uh, parents not knowing I was successful. Right. You know, 
and because uh, they would just read it. They would the, just they would read, just like, you know. This is a he joke. Says, and then I saw the stone. And then he says, and then I saw the stones on the cover of Newsweek, and that was just so ridiculous. I knew we were so for whatever it was. I don't know if it was just Robert, but the band decides let's let's get a publicist. And mm-hmm. lucky for me, it's they reach you. out to a company that had hired me as the rock guy. We go to the meeting. So I'm on the plane with Lee, and he says, "Well, tell me about the Zeppelin. Tell me about the Zeppelin." I says, "Well, look, the writers in America, <laughs> the writers in America don't like them. They consider them almost barbarians." There was a story about them like pushing around a female journalist who wrote about them as mm. being very uncouth, you know, grabbing her breasts or something like that, and. Um, he says, like, so we get to the meeting uh, with Peter. So we, we get there, and we're supposed to meet first with their manager, Peter Grant. Peter Grant was a former professional wrestler. Scary dude. Sc- in- physically intimidating, 300-pound right, guy uh, who knew a lot of British gangsters, and people were scared of him. Intimidating dude. Um, and we go in and meet with him, and... Um, Lee says, uh, tell Peter about what you said. Tell Peter about you said the barbarians thing. I said, oh, well, you know, I talked to some of my writer friends and, you know, they came up with, you know, they're worried like that the band is like barbarians. And Peter gave me this big grin. He had these capped teeth, these shiny white teeth, big Uh grin. And he says, yeah, but, and I can't do a Cockney accent. Right. He says, yeah, but we're just mild barbarians, you know? <laughs> Good band name, the Mild Barbarians. So, you know, the next day I met with the band and, and then we were the publicists. And then, mm. uh, and then uh, you know, uh, they start the tour. Houses of the Holy was the album. Comes out, uh, comes out. Rolling Stone gives it another terrible review. One of the great Zeppelin albums yeah, to me is Houses of the Holy. It's Incredible yeah, how that holds humble. up. It's unbelievable. And they good. they write Led Zeppelin great album cover too. Yeah, yeah. Led Zeppelin, uh, limp, limp. That's Rolling Stones. Unreal. They're still down. A, so shout I, out Rolling Stones. So <laughs> so I'm trying to. Uh, so I had to figure. So I, I the only thing I could think of is an angle, because Lee Salters told me he told me this word angle. You need an angle. If you're going to go to the press, you have to give them an angle. A story. A story, an angle. What's, what's the... So the only angle I could think of wasn't... that I could never convince the critics that they were good, but I convinced the editors that they were big. Right. They and were relevant. And you've got to cover this. Yeah. And the first show they did on the American tour when I was the publicist, again, just luck, was Atlanta Stadium, 50,000 people. No one else on the bill. Just Led Zeppelin. Unreal. They didn't have an opening act. They played two and a half hours. Crazy. And um, I'm with Lee, and, and he says, he says uh, did you call this one? Did you call that one? I said, yeah, Lee, I called everybody. He says, what about the wire services? And I'm like a deer in the headlights, like, what? AP and UPI. And he looks so exasperated at me. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I had never thought of that, you know, to call the Associated Press and the UPI wire services were these services that, that for all the, there were thousand newspapers in America. Right, and they couldn't all hire a music writer. Right. So 900 of them would get up their, would get their stories from these services, the yeah. Associated Press and UPI. I think AP still exists. Uh, you'll see yeah. Associated Press on stories. They do. So, um, and the second show was in Tampa, Florida, and that was 56,800 people. So I used to carry around a portable typewriter with me and, and, and paper. Um, I put it in my suitcase. And so after Tampa, the second show, I write up this press release. Um, uh, you know, because the Beatles, when they headlined Shea Stadium, 
it was 55,000 some people because that's what Shea Stadium held. Mm -hmm. And Zeppelin, the Tampa Stadium was 56,8. So I say, breaks Beatles record. You right. know, for biggest audience of a single artist. That's your angle, that's ladies my and angle. gentlemen. <laughs> that's the angle. And uh, that's something they can I, run and with. And I got a cab to the UPI office, yeah. and the guy's there by himself. It's Tampa UPI stringer, not yeah. a big job. <laughs> right. And, okay, thanks. And um, you know, put it on the wire. And uh, you know, le- years later, when um, Zeppelin did their very last Zeppelin show was in London. It was a reunion. Yeah. For some oh, charity. When was that? What? What year? Mm, five years ago. Yeah. Ten, I forget oh, when. Yeah. I know I went with Pele from the Hives. So it was while I was having this company. But sometime in the last decade, after not having anything for years, they did a little movie they put together about Zeppelin that they showed because it was, it was literally the last Led Zeppelin show, maybe the last one that there ever will be. And they were nice enough to let me, let me go to it. And, and in the film, like, like they show a close up of, of that, that newspaper headline. breaks Beatles record. Right. First time I knew they, cause they never would say that was great or good job or yeah. nothing like, but they could say that, but, but, but 50 years later I said, okay, I guess, or yeah, I guess they dug that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, then we were off oh, to the races. I see. The beat, they would never say to you, great job. No. Why yeah. not? It wasn't the culture. It wasn't the thing. Yeah. It was. It was. They were, look. Robert yeah. was a, was always nice to me, and to this day, yeah. I just saw him a few months ago in a festival in San Francisco. He's the nicest guy. Yeah, he's aged well. Yeah, like he was nice business. then. He's nice now. I really yeah. appreciate it. But it was a lot of cocaine. I was not right. on. Co- I was straight. God they were then. gods. They were Ish. gods. They, they're part of the culture was to look down on the business, right? To look down on the idea of the, that, like Robert the, would say to me, "Okay, what else do you want me to do?" And I'd say, "Robert, I work for you. I yeah, it's whatever you you don't want me to set up interviews. I yeah. want to set up interviews." But he wanted to pretend I was right. forcing him to do them. That's his angle because he, he didn't want to look at himself as a guy that liked doing interviews, right. Even though he was right, he was great at doing it. That held through all the way through the '90s and only shifted recently now, where I think musicians are more like, "Yeah, we're all businessmen," and like that's like what yeah, we're, yeah. we're supposed to be ambitious like that's cool now yeah, yeah. to start a podcast is cool now yeah, but in the yeah. 90s that would be like but I heard you were right behind Bob Gruen when he took that famous photo of them in the Zeppelin plane like the Zeppelin plane photo were you I'm sure the, I was there. there I'm sure I called him you know that was uh, my job was to yeah. call photographers and journalists to get pictures sure I'm sure I was there yeah yeah that's I mean that was I was a pub, I was their publicist that's that's how anyone would know where to go is because I would send them a release saying but did they have publicists in the UK? You were their first ever publicist. I just did it in the US. Um, my, I was the American guy. I didn't do the rest of the world for them. I, I, um, I don't know exactly what they did in the UK. There was a period of time where there was a guy named B.P. Fallon, who was kind of a legendary character in England. He was also close to Mark Bolan, did press for them for a while. I, uh, Annie Ivel at Atlantic uh, was a British uh, woman who would sometimes do press for them in 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 the uk but my job was strictly the united states so how long did you work in publicity and how did you then go into the music business to ultimately become like a head of a record company and all that well it took a long time obviously you know i i worked for salt after one year at salters and roskin yeah zeppelin hired me to work full-time for them because they i I didn't even know if they liked me after that tour and, and then peter I got called by their lawyer. Would you meet with Peter? You know, could would you fly over to England and meet with Peter? He wants to talk to you about something. Like, okay. And and he offered me this job. He says, you know, Jimmy and I really appreciate what you did. And do you want to work for us? Cool. So I got a raise. I was making 
um, fifteen thousand dollars a year at Walters and Roskin, and um, and Zeppelin paid me twenty five thousand dollars a year. That was a big increase, That's a huge leap. And plus, I was I and I just thought I got to take this shot. I you know the biggest band in the world. I so I went to work for them. I worked for them for about three years. Then I, I, I just had, publicity still or did no? You do well, then I, I, he, Peter says that with you, I had a head of publicity. So I counsel. said, you know, I think I'd be taken more seriously if I had a broader title. He says, well, what title do you want? I said, how about just vice president of of Swan Song? He said, fine. Wow. Nobody worked there. He was president. Right. They owned it. He's fine. Well, be vice president. Swan Song, Swan Song was their label. Was the label that Led Zeppelin created in those days? You know, the Beatles had created Apple. Rolling Stones had Rolling Stones records. So if you were a superstar band, Jefferson Airplane had their own label called Grunt Records. So Zeppelin liked, it was like a badge of superstardom to have your own label. And What so, gave you the wherewithal to, to make that, you know, proposition to him? Like, where do, you think, no where do you think that comes from? I don't know. I have you no don't, idea. Well, not, you don't know where that inspiration came from? Because I think that's like something that would like separate... The, I mean, this sounds... I hate that I'm wording yeah. it this way. The men from the boys, I hate wording it that way, but that's what's coming into my head and I can't think of another way to put it. But, like, I think that's a key to your rise you in know, this whole I had, career. I don't know that. where I got it from. Maybe, I want to know where you got that. I don't know whether it was from my parents right. who, who did love me. They were very disappointed that I dropped out of college and terrified when I got into problem with drugs, but they did always tell me I was smart. Were they and digging this vibe? What you, it when took you them were a like, while. They didn't understand. When it. you're vice president of Swan they didn't, my no, mother, my mother, When I got the job, my mother says, you sure you don't want to just go back to college? Right. <laughs> no, no, I swear to God. No, and I said, Mother, I, I, I know you don't know who Led Zeppelin is, but please believe right. me. I'm is, crushing it at I, life. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm seriously crushing it right now. And it was only maybe till the end of the 70s, till I was almost 30, like yeah. around 79 or 80, my parents got it that yeah. I had actually found a, a career. It's not their fault. They'd never heard of such a right. thing. Well, what is this rock and roll? You know? Yeah, yeah. But, but um, you know, then... The missing link, and, and then I had this other insane uh, uh, confidence based on when I when I was to, to take a step back. After Billboard, I got a job at Record World. Record World was a competing weekly trade magazine to Billboard, but at Record World, I could be a full time writer, not in the chart department. So. I had that job for about a year, and one of the first things I did when I was there was that, and then I could pick any assignment I wanted. I I was like, you, you know, I I had far more choices of what to write about, far more uh, uh, space in each you issue to write about. There. I had a column, I review things, you know, and um, so within the first month or so, there was an MC5 concert at um, there was a venue called the Pavilion in Queens. It had been part of the 1964 World's Fair, and they didn't assemble it, and they would do concerts there in the summer. It's like an outdoor venue. And um, I knew that all of the rock writers that I thought were cool, the Rolling Stone writers and people like that, Village Voice writers were very uh, idealized yep. in my head. They all loved the MC5. The MC5 were revolutionary. They were cool. They were hip. So I knew before I even saw them I was going to write how great they were because I wanted to be cool. I mean, that right. was more important to me than being a critic. Right. You know, and so, you know, I write this column saying how great they are. And um, 
it comes out on Monday, and the next day I get a call from Danny Fields. Uh-huh. Danny Fields was somebody who I had read about. There had been an article just about him in a, in a, in a, in a, in a little magazine, and I had read about him. And Danny Fields, when he worked at Electra Records, on his business card, his title was Company Freak. <laughs> that was actually a job. Right. That Electra, when they signed the Doors, who had been a folk label, realized they needed somebody who could relate to these freaks. Uh, freaks. The, the acid heads, they had Love, Arthur Lee's band Love. They had yeah. the Doors, which were, became their biggest band. And, and, and Danny Fields had convinced them to sign the MC5. And he also convinced them to sign the Stooges. Legendary character. I'm sure you must have run into Danny Fields over the years. He, um, later on, he, what he's best known for is that he w discovered and managed the Ramones right. in the early part of their career. And that song Danny Says is about Danny Fields. And okay. there's a documentary about Danny Fields called Danny Says. Okay, and that, he, okay, I've seen that. And he uh, discovered Iggy Pop, too, basically. He right? signed Iggy Pop and the MC5. So yeah. at this time... He was um, he had moved over to Atlantic because Electra fired him because the MC5 pissed them off. I, it's not worth going through the whole. Oh, story. really? Yeah, and yeah. so he gets hired by Atlantic and 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 brings the MC5 to Atlantic after that because Electra dropped the MC5. The MC5 like insulted some retail chain and uh -huh. said fuck them, and Electra didn't want to be in trouble with the retail chain, so they just dropped him. And the MC5 never made any money for any record company. Right. They were influential culturally, right. but no one ever made a they dime. Legitimacy. No one ever made a dime with the MC5. Yeah. So, so they didn't have the clout of a Zeppelin or a big commercial band. But they were cool. They were cool. So Danny got Atlantic to sign them. So he took me to lunch, and um, I was just so in awe of him. I mean, he knew Jim Morrison and Judy Collins and uh, Andy Warhol and all that stuff. And he, um, he, he invited me to go with him uh, later that week to Max's Kansas City. And to walk into Max's Kansas City with Danny Fields, you know, Max's Kansas City, for, there's also a documentary about, well, I don't know if it's come out, but there's books about it. Max Kansas City was a club on Park Avenue and 18th Street that was a, a, a famous cultural hangout for Warhol, a lot of his so-called superstars, Lou Reed. And it was a mixing ground. You'd see uh, Jackie Kennedy might be there, Janis Joplin, you know, all different cultural things kind of would meet there. And Mickey Ruskin was the guy who owned Max's. And one of his famous things, if anyone came up to Max's in a limo, uh, they were not allowed in. Really? You know, that was his thing. He was cool. And he would get all these painters that were, I don't know painting, you would know these names, but the people who couldn't pay their bar tag, they'd pay with a painting. Oh, right. And so when you walked in at the bar, the there were these paintings that were worth guys. like millions of dollars, yeah. you know. So the fact that I walked in with, and there was a back room, the back room of Max's was like the cool place to be. That's where when Warhol would go. And so, um, Danny, the first night I went there, invited other people to meet me. I was this 19-year-old new face. Yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. But, and, I, and a woman named Gloria Stavers was there who, would, who was the editor of 16 Magazine. And she was, um, had been one of Lenny Bruce's lovers and also had had affairs earlier in her life with like Jim Morrison and Mickey Mantle, like amazing, larger-than-life former model, died tragically young in her late 50s of lung cancer. It was a great mm. mentor to me. She was the one who recommended me for the Salters job with Zeppelin. And Lillian Roxon, who passed away in the early 70s, who's an Australian journalist who, who covered America for the Sydney Morning Herald, 
this character. And Steve Paul, who had had a, a club named Steve Paul's The Scene, where Hendrix would play every night. And then he discovered Johnny Winter, and he was Johnny Winter's manager. And I met all three of them that night with Danny and Max's. And changed my and, and that was my life for the next several years. These were the coolest. They were all people I looked up to and who for some reason decided I was an interesting guy to be around them. Why do you think that, why? What do you think about you interested then? I don't know. You must have some clue. (laughs) Young energy. I think young. Yeah, but there's lots of young people. Well, but but whatever. You know, I got into the room and it's like there's this line um, in... um, in uh, in that Dylan documentary, um, No Direction Home, mm-hmm. where Dylan says, somehow I had gotten in when no one was looking and there was nothing they could do to get me out once I was in. And I don't know how I got in, but once I was in, I was not leaving. You're not you know, leaving. I was going to find a way of staying connected. So for several years, my social life was this group of people who hung out at Max's. Different, Lisa Robinson was one of them. I know Lisa. Uh, now writes for Vanity Fair. Uh, a guy named Henry Edwards, uh, and um, Steve Paul, and uh, there was a woman named Lorraine Alterman who was New York Times critic, later married the actor Peter Boyle, and the um, 15 or 20 of us, and we just thought we were the smartest, coolest people in the world, mm-hmm. and it gave me this ridiculous, irrational self-confidence because I was considered cool by those people mm-hmm. that everybody ought to think I was cool. Right. So by the time I meet Zeppelin, I've got this... Cred irrational cockiness yourself, yeah. based on an extremely small subculture that turned mm-hmm. out not to be remotely as influential as I thought it was, but was enough it's the power, to get me into the game. It's the power of self-talk. Yeah. That gave your yeah. self-talk permission yeah. to go off the yeah, hinges yeah. and then you, so, and you so, manifest that reality. So when I reality. say that to Peter Grant, make me vice president, I figured, man... okay. I can get in the back room at Max's. I'm like, you know, I <laughs> might as well dra- be vice president. I've met these drag queens. I'm like, I'm more than a mere publicist. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm a cultural icon. Yeah. Like, I, and, and he was like, fine. What did he, you know, but it's the power of self talk. Yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. It's like, if you like, you know, it's the fake it till you make it. Or if you like, can, totally. you know, the power of delusion in no a way, question. but it becomes not delusional. Yeah. What did you do that? It's really like hard to get that momentum going, though. But once you do, and you know. So what did I do? Where? At Swamp as vice president. What well, was your well, job? the job was mostly publicity. Oh, still publicity. <laughs> still <laughs> publicity. <laughs> publicity. But but vice but, president. I, but I had a broader set of things because I ended up Swan Song wasn't really a label it was more of an imprint yeah because they were on atlantic and the label was atlantic yeah and atlantic just gave them this imprint so i was the one that would go to atlantic and meet with the promo people and the salespeople on behalf of the band because they were all in england peter was my boss but he only came to america periodically and they had one other executive named steve weiss who was a lawyer so all the negotiations the money the business deal steve weiss controlled completely i had nothing to do with that or didn't even know what the details of it were but anything to do with dealing with the booking agencies or the like because they did sign some other acts and again i this is a zelig thing there's so many lucky things happened and one of the many lucky things that happened was that the first album released on swan song was Bad Company's first album, mm-hmm. Bad Co. Huge. Which had a number one single, Can't Get Enough of Your Love, and a number one album. So now I'm the vice president and of a company with a number. Genius. 
Yeah, like <laughs> I was just there. <laughs> right. I mean, we mailed it out. We mailed with the stamp. <laughs> I mean, we had these. You know, you then in those days you would physically mail out the records to the press. We mailed it out. You must have good karma from a past life. Must thank you, something. God. Wow. Something. So, was Peter Green an intimidating character to Peter work Grant. for? Peter Grant. I mean, sorry, Peter yeah. Grant. Peter Grant, great guitar player. Yeah, Peter Green. Yeah, yeah great guitar. But Peter Grant was he intimidating? Peter Grant could be very intimidating. Because I heard that um, he did. He was good to me. You know, I uh, he he really was. I owe him so much, and I got to thank him. He passed away. Uh, at least 15 years ago we had uh, you, you know and I and I did have a phone conversation with him maybe a year before he died where I really got to thank him and he was so sweet about it um, but he was good to me I learned a lot from him I learned how to be a manager from him right you know I mean it was the same way I learned how to be a publicist by watching Lee Salters if mm -hmm. you talk about what that idea of mentor that overused word I mean Peter I worked for him for two and a half years and you know, his idea was, fuck everybody else. All that matters is what the artist, we work for the artist. Don't suck up to the record company. Mm -hmm. Don't suck up to the concert promoters. Don't suck up to the media. It's all about what the band wants. That's, that's, that's what we care about. And uh, I carry that attitude to this day mm -hmm. when I think of, you know, not with the swagger of Peter Grant. For one thing, I don't have anybody as big as Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. It's a little easier to swagger when you're representing Zeppelin mm -hmm. than, than, you know, but, um, but you've been in that position but before. But he, uh, he was, uh, you know, he was physically intimidating. I mean, first of all, he was 300 pounds. So just sitting next to him in a limo when the car took a left turn, he, he like, I'd have hundreds of pounds, you know, you know yeah. he was just physically intimidating. He was, uh, he was definitely somebody that when he was angry was intimidating and would get into physical fights. Although I never saw him hit anybody. Right. I, there's no question in my mind he did uh, from time to time. And, um, you know, there's that documentary, uh, The Song Remains the Same. There's some footage of Peter backstage yelling at somebody who had bootlegged Zeppelin T-shirts. And, 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 and I was working for them there. I was at that show mm -hmm. in, 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 that was filmed for Song Remains the Same. That was at right. the Garden in, in 73. That's amazing. So he was, uh, you know, he could definitely be intimidating. Um, and he could sometimes be very, very brilliant. And he also sometimes made mistakes which again the cocaine you know and all that sort of a thing but but uh you know um i was always worried about him being mad at me i i, I walked around in a constant state of anxiety about not wanting peter to be mad at me but he was mostly pretty nice to me That's i gotta cool. say i was really lucky that way i i mean i i owe him a lot and he uh, taught me a lot by example and he liked me, and he, he put me in that position. He changed my life. I mean, to this day, that's my biggest calling card is that I work for Zeppelin. I mean, first time I met Nirvana, really, Dave Grohl wanted to hear Zeppelin stories. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about, too, though, because you said you don't have an artist that big that you could warrant that kind of swagger, but you did manage Nirvana, who was arguably even bigger well, in, well at, in, in some respects. Well, I mean, they were never as big in terms of the amount of money they made because they just didn't tour as much right. because Kurt didn't like touring that much. But cultural uh, importance-wise. culture importance-wise, they're on the A-list. Yeah. Well, I, I carried Peter Grant. I wrote a book uh, that came out earlier this year about working with Kurt called Serving the Servant, right. remembering Kurt Cobain. And in it, I say... I kept thinking, what would Peter Grant do, mm. you know, and, and how would he handle this? And I would I would often think about certain things about, like, like um, 
like Lollapalooza wanted Nirvana to be on. And I, to be fair, I mean, I had a partner in managing Nirvana named John Silva, John who Silver. today is an incredibly successful manager, has the Foo Fighters, many other big bands. But in those days, I was like the 40-year-old veteran and John was younger. And John knew the music and the culture much better and did a lot of the work. But, but I played my role. And, and I always, I remember when they were offered Lollapalooza the first time, Talking with Curtin, I, I, I said, look, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I, Led Zeppelin wouldn't have done this. Led Zeppelin did their own shows. Right. You know, and my idea is that you're big enough, you, you, you create your own, if you want to do something like, you do your own thing. Right. And, um, you know, I'm not saying, Kurt did what he wanted to do for his own reasons, but they never did do Lollapalooza. Right. And, and, I, and I, I had nothing against Lollapalooza. I only wish I'd thought of Lollapalooza. Right. And, and, and no, but it's that an makes incredible sense. cultural thing. But for that particular band, I, I, did, I did think through the lens of how Peter Grant thought about Nirvana as is, is, is to create their own world, not to try to latch on to other people's worlds you know yeah you mean and, how peter grant thought of led zeppelin yeah how peter grant thought of zeppelin you know right. uh, in in certain ways a totally different kind of band i mean kurt had all the social consciousness that zeppelin didn't have and um you know zeppelin had a had a physical commitment to touring that nirvana you know, that, that kurt never had and it was a different kind of music and a different time but uh you know um I, I think I was a much better manager, and I think to this day I'm a better manager because I work for Peter Grant. There's just no question about it. Right. Mainly the whole thing of you're dedicated to the artist. The, yeah, the, the, the paradigm, the mindset. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 you, you know, just, you know, you, again, you can't overplay your hand. You've got to also sometimes you have to compromise because, like I said, not every, very few artists have the clout commercially that Zeppelin or Nirvana had. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but as a mindset of what the role is, understanding what the role is. And I think that if you talk to any of the British managers the, uh, that came along later on, that Tony Smith who did uh, Genesis and Phil Collins or Ed Bicknell who did Dire Straits or that whole next generation of British managers, they all will say they patted themselves after Peter Grant. That's interesting. Yeah. They should have a manager's hall of fame. I don't know who would go to it. Yeah. Other managers. <laughs> it's a small, you'd have to charge a lot for entrance. Uh, <laughs> $3,000 a ticket. Yeah. So how did you go from swan song to then what happened after that? Well, I had a falling out in 76 with Peter. and um, What was it over? Oh, uh, you know... Um, you know, the Zeppelin vibe was getting a little darker and druggier. And it was, you know, there, there were a couple of different things. One thing is there was a young artist that I wanted to manage named Mirabai who never made it successfully. But I thought she was going to, you know, uh, be an important artist. And, um, uh, you know, I was, I was spending too much of my time on her. In retrospect, I mean, I don't blame Peter for firing me. Mm. In retrospect. And, 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 and he said, look, you've either got to let her go or I, I have to let you go. And I was like, no one's going to tell me what to do. So that right. was the exact predicate. And there were some other disagreements we'd had having to do with the booking of the band, the pretty things that I just not worth, or then some bad company concert promoter decisions that so I complained, bullshit complained about that in retrospect, I was totally overreaching and thinking my opinion should matter that much. Mm -hmm. But at the time I, again, I was pretty jacked up on my own, what is that old expression from dope dealing, getting high on my own supply? Yeah. You know, got my own supply of ego. Yeah. So I started my own PR company 
because uh, I thought like, I, and, and, and because I had been Zeppelin's publicist, I got clients right away. And the first client I got was Kiss. Wow. Um, I'd known Bill O'Coin from the time he started with Kiss, and we'd stayed friends. And what year is this? 76. Okay, and how old were you? 26. So this is like, right, Kiss is like becoming, like, they're the huge... Kiss had too. become, again, they'd already become a big superstar. Right. And, um, and the record that, uh, that, that they put out when I worked for them during that period of time was called Rock and Roll Over. I don't remember what the songs were on. Mm-hmm. And then the other, and then somehow I met, um, through a friend, I met a guy who worked for Jet Records. And Jet Records was the creation of a guy named Don Arden. Don Arden was, had been Peter Grant's boss. He was an even more connected with British gangsters than Peter Grant was. And he, um, he had managed the small faces, the animals. And at this time, his big band was Electric Light Orchestra. ELO, and they were big. They had big hits, and he created a label around them called Jet Records. So um, they became a client, and then I had another old friend who's still a friend of mine and still alive, I'm happy to say, named Paul Fishkin, who was running Bearsville Records. That was Albert Grossman's label. Albert Grossman had been Dylan's manager at his peak, Janis Joplin's manager, had then created Bearsville Records, and their biggest act was Foghat, Forgotten now, but they were a platinum mm-hmm. band that could headline, you know, sell five thousand seats, and they had Todd Rundgren and some other people. So those were my clients. Were first Kiss, and that only lasted a year or two because then Bill started his own in-house PR thing, and then Bearsville Records and Jet Records, and those became the nucleus of a PR company which had the imaginative name Danny Goldberg Inc., mm-hmm. <laughs> which I started. Uh, out of my apartment on 79th Street, and then enough business came, and I was able to rent offices. Right. Uh, and um, and I and I wanted to be a manager, but I couldn't get anyone to want me to be their manager. I was still in my 20s. I didn't really know anything except publicity. And there's a certain psychological attitude you've got to have to make people think you could be a manager. It's not just an age thing, but getting older did help me yeah. convey that. There are some very young people who are great managers, but... For me, and, and I got my first management client during those years of the late 70s, a band called Mink DeVille. Uh-huh. And uh, incredible band, a guy named Willie DeVille. He passed away some years ago. He had a drug problem and all that stuff. But they didn't make it, but at least that kind of got me into the thing of, okay, I've managed them. I've that. heard of them, though. Yeah, oh, they, yeah, he died, you know, but they, they, if you, they, they had some great songs. There's a cult following still of some of Mink DeVille's yeah. songs. I'm I'm very proud to have worked with them. I, you know, what's the thing that you were saying? There's a there's a an energy you have to give off to be a manager. What is that energy? I think someone has to trust that you know something about the business and can guide them. It's 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 some sort of a big brother kind of a role. You're mm-hmm. you're. I mean, even though as a manager you're working for the artist, I always say we don't manage them. We manage their career for mm-hmm. them. Yeah, we manage for them. We don't manage them. But those lines but there's get still blurred. A, but there's those lines can get blurred, Very easily. and you still have to make. It's like being a, you know, you still have to represent some kind of authority, at least within one part of their career. Yeah. Well, I heard Kurt Cobain call you a second father in an interview. Well, that was amazing that he said that on the um, John Savage interview. John Savage. That was a great fucking excuse my French interview, or it's more like a 
pre-podcast before podcast on YouTube of uh, John Savage uh, uh, and Kirk. Well, I, you know, I listened. I had not heard. You I had had, didn't seen, hear that. I had seen the article years ago. It's on YouTube. But I hadn't heard it, and then when I was researching the book, I I just wanted to hear Kurt's voice. Yeah. Uh, at some point, I got stuck writing, and I went on YouTube. Yeah. And and I came across it and listened to it, and right. when I heard him say that, I just started crying. This is yeah. just like a year ago. And that was after he said you weren't even managing him right. anymore, and he said that. I so know. That was I, a very sweet thing. I, 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 I listened to it last night in oh, preparation. Oh wow. Yeah. And I, when I got to that, I was like, oh, man. Yeah, it blew my mind when I heard it. It's just, yeah. again, I had not heard his voice saying that yeah. until last year, exactly what you're saying on YouTube. Right. And But Kurt was that way. He was so yeah. nice to me. Yeah, but that is the, the, the uh, it does become a family kind of thing when you are managed yeah. by people. It, it does, those lines do blur. Yeah, they blur a little bit. There's a certain kind of a, kind of a gravitas you need to have for people to have confidence in you that you understand enough about them, number yeah. one, and number two, that you understand enough about the business that you can do something for them. And it's that perception. It's not always based in reality, but that's perception is what makes somebody say, okay, fine, be my manager. Right. You know? So, um, but that's a it took me a theme. while. It took me a while. I, I never really got traction doing that until, um, the a until I was well into my thirties is when I finally kind of found a tone and a posture that able was actually able to build some some management clients. But for the first several years as a publicist, though, I could sell myself right away because mm -hmm. I'd been Zeppelin's publishers. That's the only one. I the first time I met with Kiss, yeah. we were talking about their next record, and after about a half hour, Paul Stanley said, "Okay, fine. Now I want to talk about what's really important. <laughs> Tell me what Jimmy and Robert are really like to work with." Yeah, you know, so. You know, that was a hell of a credential. what did you tell him? I don't remember. But You don't? <laughs> something that, that he didn't fire me, so it must have been okay. He's another nice guy, Paul Stanley. Yeah. You know? What was it like working with Paul and Gene? You know, um, I, I ended up at that time being closer to Gene because mm -hmm. Gene was really the guy that was so um, into the imagery. I mean, the makeup had... I believe had been his idea. Mm -hmm. uh, he he was a media freak, and uh, he was uh, fun to work with, you know. Uh, and um, it was uh, it was uh, very uh, you, you know it was like you throw him the ball, he knew what to do with it, mm -hmm. you, you know. So so it was fun. Again, after about a year, O'Coin wanted to get in house PR. And I didn't want to work just for him, so we parted ways professionally. But I stayed in touch. I worked with Kiss a couple of other times in subsequent years on different projects in different ways. Mm. And uh, you know, I um, I really respected the professionalism. You know, they they understood what they wanted to do. They didn't have any of the romance of trying to make art. Mm. It was all about business success. But they did have this visceral connection to the idea of rock and roll it's kind of the andy warhol thing because by accident then they made great rock and roll music if, like you know what yeah. i mean like you say they weren't they didn't say we're artists first and foremost we're businessmen we're like making this thing 
But Andy but, Warhol was into the art of making money and then made great art. But he also art. was an artist. Right. That's exactly right. No, they were a good rock band. They, they weren't... A great one, yeah. I think. So, I mean, and, there's great rock and roll songs. You know, and uh, and, and they, they reinvented the idea of a live show. Yeah. At that time, they were really more theatrical than anyone else was at that moment. A lot of things that have now become kind of cliches, like, you know, fireworks or fire mm -hmm. going off or different things. But, you know, they, they were on the cutting edge of bringing theatricality to hard rock and uh, you know they're a big band legendary band for a reason they they, they entertain people yeah. and touched people you know uh, so again I didn't know them as well as some of the other people I work with but I like them I like Gene I'm a little bummed out the last you know Gene's like a Trump supporter is he you know which kind of bums Full on, I on think. Is he, is he really? Well, but a lot of people are friends. on the apprentice. No, 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 no. But no, no. Gene, Gene visited the White House, <laughs> did a briefing oh, in the Defense he? Department. I didn't After 9-11, Gene started spouting more right-wing things for whatever reasons. And God bless him. You know, his, his parents were Holocaust survivors. I met his mother many times, uh, Florence. You know, mm -hmm. she was a trip-doting Jewish mother. And something in his head... I don't think he was ever a liberal, but but he became a more owning, being a being a kind of a right winger, and it's it's harder for me to deal with in the Trump era. Although we all need as human beings to respect people we disagree with. Um, well, that but, seems to gone away is respecting people that you disagree with. That 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 part is. What do you What are your thoughts on that? Like like the the sort of antagonism between the uh, left and the right. You know, it's trying to get into the spiritual frame of mind is is the best frame for it. You know, Ramdas, right. who's who's you know uh, politically, he's never talked much about politics, but he's a liberal. You know, uh, votes Democrat. You know, like like started talking years ago during the Gulf War period uh, with George W. Bush, of uh, you have to see the soul of people and not just their roles and. You know, he would say, my guru told me to love everybody. He used to say, and the hardest challenge was Republicans, you know. Mm -hmm. But he's committed it to being a spiritual being. And he would put, he has a puja table with different, his guru and different saints and everything. And then he would always put a, a John Boehner or, or, or W on his puja table just to remind himself I have to love the challenge is to love the hardest person to love, not the easiest person, you know. And I think he has Trump on his puja table now too. And you just have to see, it's all part of one, God knows more than me. I don't understand the why the world is the way it is. I don't know why they're suffering. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, I can't explain it. It's not from my mortal mind to explain the whole universe. Yeah. But the idea of trying to love everybody to the extent you can is, 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 works for me. Dr. King said the same thing. Yeah, you know, and he was he was unwavering in disagreeing with people, right? Uh, if they were racists or warmongers or things like that, but but he would always aspire to to, to love them. And I think it's it's aspirational. It's hard to actually live that way and be that way, but it's the best aspirational place to go, uh, and to try to also in this world people are operating under totally two different sets of reality. Like I remember during the Gulf War, they did a poll of everybody in the country. Do you think Iraq attacked us on 9-11? And I think, you know, 30% said yes. And then did a poll just the people who watched Fox News and like 65% thought said yes. Because yes, they were told that. So. Yeah. People are, and I used to say, you know, if I thought they had attacked us on 9 11, 
I might have felt differently about that war. I don't know. I'm a pacifist by nature. I Mm -hmm. I, I don't like wars, but a very different thing if they had actually attacked us on 9-11 as opposed to the fact that they had absolutely nothing to do with it. Yeah. And uh, so, so you know, people are operating with different information. Yeah, exactly. They're not reading what we're reading. They don't have the same experiences. And you have to just go back to try to see the commonness of the humanity and not based on the, you know, but there's so much of a market, uh, like, for polarization if, you're, if you want power or money. It's it's uh, it's a good business to be in the polarizing business. Fox makes a lot of money, and there are people on the left who you know all the left wing groups that I support, like the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, yeah. they raise more money after Trump became president than at any time in their history. Yeah. So polarization can pay off. That's the that's the bummer about it. Yeah. What do you think about the deplatformings and all that kind of stuff going on? Does any of that disturb you? I don't really understand it that much. You know. Um, I'm. I come out of a free speech, free speech um, sensibility. That's where you. I came was an ACLU the, the officer. Whole... You know, the ACLU board member. I was against any. You know, when Tipper Gore was criticizing rock lyrics and rap lyrics, I defended free speech, and uh, right. I do believe in the in the ideal of free speech. But even the most extreme civil libertarian position recognized that there were certain kinds of speech that are inappropriate, like, for example, slander yeah. or threatening to kill somebody. Of course. You know, so... But so I think that YouTube's in an era where... YouTube's like, health food channels now at this point, stuff yeah, like I that. Yeah, don't, I haven't studied it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very unsettling... It's like, where do you draw the I, line? I don't know, and, and then, I don't think anyone knows, and I don't know where to draw the yeah. line. I mean, I think the idea of completely lying in a way, you know, uh, how, even that phrase, hate speech... I think different people can use it in different ways. Right. But I do think that um, that something's out of control at the point that it's damaging the whole society, the, the level of uh, just completely lying about people. I mean, for Facebook to say it's okay to run an ad saying that Joe Biden took a billion-dollar bribe, and they know absolutely that's not true, but you know their right. position is, hey, it's not for us to decide if the Republicans want to buy these ads, it's okay. That doesn't feel right to me. No, that doesn't feel right. But neither does deplatforming, like, you know, alternative modes of healing and stuff no, like that. No, I agree that. with you. I, I, that I, part disturbs no, me. No, I think there's extremes. Like, like, I think I think there's got to be a middle ground. I don't know yeah. how to articulate or define it, nor have I studied it enough yeah. to be an intelligent person to talk about it. But there's got to be some new way of thinking about it. And... Uh, either extreme approach isn't good. You don't want to have some uh, uptight uh, board of committee uh, like uh, narrowing and muting and limiting free expression, nor can you have just sociopathic liars running the world. So there's got to be some standard, some middle ground, some credentialing. I don't know how you do it, uh, I hope somebody's thinking about it. I don't think anybody you know, is. I think there are people thinking <laughs> I mean, about it. I think it. there are people I don't, I don't know whether it, but... they have enough of an influence on Google and yeah. Facebook. Uh, but but I, I, I think over the next decade, it'll it'll shake out. I mean, you look at American history, there's been a lot of weird periods. This is not the first That's true. insane time. There were Salem witch burn- There were witch burnings. Right. Okay, let's yeah. just start with that. Slavery, yeah. Yeah. genocide of Native Americans, yeah. McCarthyism. 
you know, no, we can survive. We've been lied into more than one war. I believe we can survive this. Yeah. yeah. So you know, you know, it's not like this country was just so perfect until right. Donald Never. Trump came along. Yeah, exactly. Not right. I agree with you there. Who do you like now? For I mean, you don't have to say. I mean, I'll say who I'm going to vote for. I'm going to vote for Elizabeth Warren. Oh, okay. I, I like her. I don't know that she's going to win. Tulsi, uh, what's her name? Tulsi. I'm not a fan of hers. You're not a fan. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't really quite uh there's something about her that makes me a little uncomfortable i mean i like certain positions she takes her sort of uh, anti-intervention posture i'm an anti-interventionist i'm a believer in lowering the defense budget anti-imperialist that part of her i like i don't really understand what else she stands for mm-hmm. and her general sort of anger at everybody doesn't feel right to me as a mm-hmm. as a national leader i i mean i think she's an interesting character but i i'm not for her for president of the united states okay yeah so you like elizabeth warren i like elizabeth warren i i also like bernie mm-hmm. um i'll definitely support whoever gets the nomination no matter right. who it is yeah. if any democrat to me i'll support enthusiastically yeah. but but my my politics veer to what you would call more to the left uh, social democratic you know i do believe the wealth imbalance is a huge problem and yeah you, you know, I identify with the policy positions of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. I don't know if either of them will get the nomination, though. And if they don't, then I'll support whoever does. Right on. Well, um, so where where did you like veering back to the music stuff? Where did you go? Where did you go after? How did you get on Atlantic Records? Um, I had um, so when I started the PR company. Um, I told you one of my clients was Bearsville Records. Mm-hmm. And Paul Fishkin ran Bearsville for Albert. And um, at some point in the late 60s, I'm sorry, the late 70s, uh, early 80s, but I think it was the end of the, I get mixed up with these years now, yikes. Um, anyway, at some point, uh, he starts um, dating Stevie Nicks when Fleetwood Mac was at their peak of popularity. Rumors was the biggest album in history at that time. Mm-hmm. So whatever your rumors came out, he's dating Stevie Nicks. And he wanted me to meet her. And uh, I was so excited to meet Stevie Nicks. And uh, we discovered very quickly, he, he explained to me that she wasn't signed to a record company as a solo artist. Now, to just go back, Fleetwood Mac had been around for many, many years, and they kept changing guitar players. They had Peter Green for a while, we mentioned before, a guy named Bob Welsh for a while, and then they reach out to Lindsey Buckingham, and Lindsey Buckingham says, look, if I'm going to be in the band, my, my, my girlfriend's got to be in the band, too. Mm-hmm. She, we, we have a duo together. They had this record, Buckingham Nicks. So they had no idea. They didn't even want Stevie Nicks. They just took her to get Lindsey. And Warner Brothers was the label. They were this huge label. They had, uh, you know, um, ver- you know, one of, the biggest rec- one of the biggest major record companies. So Fleetwood Mac was not a particularly important artist to them. They had made six or seven records. They would always sell like 100, 150,000 records at a time when platinum was a million. But Warner's had this habit of not dropping bands. And so usually when a label would sign a band, they would have what was called leaving member clauses for each member of the band. So... If uh, if uh, you know uh, you know Robert Plant when Zeppelin broke up, Robert Plant still I think had some obligation to Atlantic initially, and so on. But because Fleetwood Mac had, had so many different members, no one at Warner's thought it was worth signing leaving members clauses to the latest members of Fleetwood Mac. Who cares who's in Fleetwood Mac? 
So the first record that Stevie and Lindsay are in, they go from selling 150,000 to 4 million because she wrote this song called Rhiannon. Mm -hmm. It becomes a gigantic hit. The second record with the two of them is Rumors, which is so, ends up selling like 20 million or something. It was at that time literally the biggest album in history. It was number one for 39 weeks in a row. Mm -hmm. And she wrote the biggest hit on that also, a song called Dreams. And so by this time, she, she had no reason to sign anything. Now she's the one of the lead singers and songwriters of the biggest band in the world. And in fact, her song, there were three different writers and singers in Fleetwood Mac, Lindsay, Stevie, and Christine McVie. But Stevie's had the biggest hits. Mm -hmm. Dreams and Rhiannon and later Sarah, Landslide, Gold Dust Woman. These were literally the biggest ones. And, and, and Paul explained to me she'd become frustrated because... Um, they wouldn't include enough of her songs on the record. There are all these arguments in multi-writer groups, who's going to get more songs for mm -hmm. the publishing revenue. And she had this song called Silver Springs that they wouldn't put on rumors and it really infuriated her. And she was looking for other outlets. So I was like so excited. I just started going, that's when I started going to LA just to hang out with Stevie Nicks. I got her home number and she'd invite me over and uh, she had this whole entourage of people that liked her. And I- Did I, you have a crush I, on her? Well, it was unrequited. Everybody you know, did. My best friend had, had an affair with her. It wasn't like a, a uh, right. possibility, nor yeah. do I have any reason to believe she was interested in me. But right. I was like, "Is that you and her?" Yeah, that's me and Stevie. Yeah. Oh man, um, you look good there. <laughs> yeah, I was younger then, like Don Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I that's was, a good shot. Yeah, yeah. We got to take a picture of that. I'll, yeah, I'll put yeah, that in the video. Yeah. So. So after a, uh, different ideas of Stevie projects, we come up with the idea of starting a label and that she should make solo records. And she goes for it and we created something called Modern Records. And we ended up doing the Modern Records. We needed funding for it and we talked to all the big companies. And Doug Morris had just gotten into a position at Atlantic where he, he was running a division of Atlantic called Atco and the Custom Labels. He wasn't president of Atlantic yet. Um, and he, he got the company to invest X millions of dollars for our company. So now I'm in business with Doug Morris. And the mm -hmm. first record that came out on Modern was Belladonna by Stevie Nicks. It went to number one. So that's how I got to know Doug Morris. Mm. And some years later, after Nirvana, I stayed in touch with Doug over the years, do different things with Atlantic sometimes with other labels, but always stayed in touch with him. He was like a contact that I had and he liked me. And then after Atlantic... You know, I got hot in the um, in the early in the late '80s, early '90s as a manager. First, Bonnie Raitt won the Grammy for Album of the Year, and then the next year we had Nirvana. And suddenly, I'm after after 20 years of trying to be taken seriously in the business. In my early 40s, now I'm like a hot manager because I had these two big things that were kind of different genres. Yeah. And Doug at that point was looking for an executive. To, to become president of Atlantic, he wanted to move up in the hierarchy. So he, he offered me a job to be senior VP of Atlantic for the West Coast. And I, I was pretty sure if I did a good job, there was a good chance I could become president of Atlantic because right. I, I kind of knew what, what, where he wanted to go. And that's what happened. Yeah. So, you know, that's... How similar was that job to the, one you had, the ones you had already learned publicity and management? Was well, there were some similar? similarities and some differences, you know. The similarities were being able to talk to artists and get their confidence and having a sense of marketing and the imaging. That mm -hmm. part was similar. And the, um, you know, trying to be a team builder and get along with people. But there was a whole other dimension in corporations of sort of uh, understanding the financial requirements of a corporation and the politics of different levels of the corporation. 
that I never really mastered, which is why I only spent six years at major labels. Mm. Uh, but I was I had enough hits for, that I was able to spend six years in those big jobs, and I made more money in those six years than I did any other time before or after. And were you still a manager while you were doing that? Well, I I, I wasn't much of a ma you know when I first went to Atlantic. Um, Kurt was still alive. Right. And because of the way that things had developed in the relationships of the people around Nirvana, I developed this personal relationship with him that was unique among the business people in his life. Mm -hmm. And the main reason for that was that I uh, got along with Courtney, who was his wife, and right. a lot of other people. When he first fell in love with her, people didn't think it was going to last and weren't particularly nice to her, I just sort of, that was an advantage of being older. Yeah. You know, the advantage of being younger when I was younger, but the advantage of, the, then I was older than the other people that were around the band in their 20s. Mm -hmm. And I just knew he was in love with her. I knew it wasn't some groupie or anything right. like that. I just I just, I just, just got it right away. So um, by this time, by the t after Nevermind was out, I, I was really attracted to the idea of leaving management and working for a big company. First of all, I had a sense of the fragility of Nirvana commercially because I realized Kurt had some problems. Secondly, uh, I'd had my first kid. My daughter, Katie, was born in 1990, so she's one or two years old. And being a manager, you're traveling a lot. And it was, it was uh, you, you know, when I went to work for Atlantic, I had weekends. It was like, yeah, I, it was, unbelievable. you, you know, I didn't have to personally deal with the payroll of, of, a, of a small business. So in terms of the amount of physical time it took, it was easier than being a manager. But there were things involved with trying to be a good executive that, again, that were completely new to me. I'd never studied finance. I'd never studied law. I'd never been in a corporation. And I made quite a few mistakes, although I worked for two corporations, first Warner Music, which was Atlantic and Warner Brothers, and then Polygram and Mercury. And again, because of hits kept me through, but but you know, uh, there were things that I was good at and things I wasn't good what at. What mistakes did you make? Well, uh, uh, losing my temper at the wrong people at the wrong time, mm, having my feelings hurt, my, investing my ego in minor issues, um, uh, you know, being overly, you know, not always, respectful enough of the budgetary needs of a company and having this Max's Kansas City notion that being cool was more, more important. important than it actually is. You know, you know, you, it's a funny thing, this line of work. So the writing has been great for my head these last two books. I've got to think of a new book I'm going to work on over the holidays, see if I can sell it. And um, What's the idea? The idea in general, the arena is the connection between entertainment and politics in the Trump era. Uh. Because so many artists, performers, comedians, singers, I mean, it's such an intense statement by so much of the creative community, unprecedented, way more than during the Vietnam era. You know, from Taylor Swift to Bette Midler to, you know. Uh, and I'm fascinated by that kind of other definition of America through a cultural lens instead of just the narrow definition of what pollsters are. So I, I have this incoherent idea that I'm trying to make coherent. Mm -hmm. But it's an arena that I know some about and that I care about. So I'll see if I can pull it off. You know, I did a experiment. I did a piece for The Nation a couple of weeks ago about Kathy Griffin that was just an attempt because she did this special on that's um, on Amazon about 
You know, she had this drama where I don't know her. I just did a phone interview with her and then and wrote the story. With but, the drama but, with but, the head thing. With the head, and then she's uh, like, all her shows were canceled, and yeah, the, WME dropped her, and CNN fired her, and the FBI investigator for conspiracy to assassinate the president. That's and ridiculous. Insane. Yeah. Yeah, and and so she real. did this comedy special about that and then she overcame it and did an international tour and filmed it and made this thing. And I just think it's a it's an interesting story and, and she kind of became an interesting lens because she comes out of reality television, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. She knew Trump from that world. Right. And she speaks the language of the Kardashians, you know. Yeah. In a way, so either it's just a thousand-word piece. It's not like a book about Kelly, but but I think there's maybe fifty mosaic pieces like that that I might be able to have something interesting to say about it all. But I might not. It's you know, it's creative. You know how it is. Not I every do. song you write ends up being great. How do you focus yourself to write a book? Do you have like a, a okay? I'm going to write in the mornings. Do you do morning pages? What do you What do you do? What's your um, process when you decide to do it? Usually, I spend the first half of the day. Um, procrastinating. <laughs> Good to hear. And then, and then, at a certain point in the afternoon, I'm in such a so, self hatred so that you just have to. That I just have to. Right. That's my. <laughs> I love that. That's good. That That's gives my me process. <laughs> That's not bad. You know. And, is uh, writing something you do all the time, or is it specific? I to try like, to do it all the time because if I stop doing it, it's very hard to start it's again. Hard to get back. Hard to get back. It takes me weeks. So I tr- it's that old cliche. I try to keep the muscle mm-hmm. alive, and I'm struggling with that now. But I try to write something every day, even if it's just for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. just just to not lose touch with the idea of it. Finishing a book, I have no problem with. Then I'm then I I, I have a goal. Mm. And I have a plan, and I can budget out two, three hours. About two, three hours is about as much as I can concentrate a day usually, mm. in, unless it's right near a deadline. But starting one is like existential terror because yeah. you know uh, a lot of them. A lot of times, I think I have an idea, and it's a road to nowhere. Yeah. Uh, but um, but it's been good for my head doing doing the writing, and it's again, it's kind of redefined myself to myself, and I'm. You know, the two books were real publishers, real reviews, New York Times, you know, yeah. Washington Post, London, the Kurt book. Because of him, you know, it's translated into like 12 other languages. There's a Russian version, a Polish version, Brazil, you know, There's Portuguese, fascination with them Spanish, German, French. So that's that's been a fun once in a lifetime. I, I don't have another subject like Kurt Cobain. Right. You know, I, I, but... but that's the most recent one, and that that was the most successful one so far. So hopefully, I can keep doing it. But it's uh, it's a constant uh, struggle because it's so easy. I mean, you've been so amazing. The amount of creative things you've done. I mean, no matter whether you were screwed up or healthy, you're always being creative. Mm-hmm. Hundreds and hundreds of songs and paintings, and you know, you have a unique channel. I don't have that. I I have to just find a little channel and try to manifest it. But, but I uh, have it writing feels ambitions good it, too, and yeah. I deal with that same procrastination yeah. and the same like, yeah, like right now I've like lost the muscle memory of writing and I've had it before and I know how good that feels when you're on in the zone of the flow yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I like, I love rewriting. That's, that's the, I mean, to me, for, to me, the biggest part of writing is rewriting. You have the general idea and then actually it's like, refining it and refining it and, and, and getting rid of the redundant sentences and getting rid of the stupid words and trying to find a more conversational way of saying things and to bring it to life. 
but it's starting it is is very very hard uh, uh, my wife Karen has written a couple of books and when she was working on her first her last book she was just struggling with it she, she does but like the book about the Justice Department called mm-hmm. Rogue Justice was her most recent one and her and she was like bitching and moaning about it and her, and her daughter just said mom just write a bad book mm. you know that's so liberating and it was what a genius how right? old's that person it's <laughs> like she's 30 now <laughs> okay so she's yeah, yeah that's but, that, that was the best that's advice the ever. That is the best advice to anyone doing yeah. any creative thing. Right. Give yourself permission for it to be bad. Right. You know, even like starting this podcast, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We didn't and, do yeah. a bad job. And, <laughs> yeah, well, but it's like you have to just go for it yeah. and just do it. Even like coming in to interview you, I'm like, you know, because I know you a little bit. And, I, I got to say, it meant so much to me when Ehud said you wanted to do this. Oh, yeah. Because I've always wanted to reconnect. And this is probably the longest conversation we've ever had. Yeah. So I very much appreciate well, that friends, you wanted yeah. to do Yeah, it. no, I, I, I respect you a great deal, yeah. you know, yeah. and enjoyed working with you. It's like, and I tell people like, yeah, Danny used to manage me and we, we ended, but we're still friends. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's always been my theory behind yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, most of you the know. people... Uh, uh, 90% of the people I used to work with I still feel friends with there's a couple where the feelings are still not that great but 90% it happens yeah shit shit happens shit happens and uh, you know you're never gonna get to 100% but uh, anyway so what else so writing about the Kurt Cobain thing like that that like uh, has that's brought up a bunch of wild controversy too like around his death and stuff like that I mean what's your feeling and take on all that stuff well you know I I had a because I knew him and I was there for a lot of it I mean I didn't take drugs with him I didn't play music with him and I wasn't the punk rock generation but I, I, you know, it was nice that he said that in an interview. But I looked at it more of as a big brother. Not, you okay. know, he was smarter than me, more talented than me. You know, uh, there's no question about that. But, but in certain areas, I could, I could be of help to him. I, psychologically, he he had zero relationship with his own father. You right. Know? I only met his father once at the funeral. You know. Mm. Um, but um, the, um, you know. Um, so I'm happy to talk about him, but I, I knew what I thought because I was there. It was a challenging of putting it into a book form, and I spoke to around 40 other people, Courtney and Chris Novoselic, as well as you know Scott Litt and a couple of the record producers, people at the label, the people who knew him when I knew him. I right. wasn't trying to do a biography of Kurt. I didn't do his childhood. The last three years of the his life. The last three years of his life when I worked with him. And um, th- that helped me to bring it to life and to flesh it out. But I knew what I thought about the so-called controversies mm-hmm. when I started out. And um, I'm happy to talk about any of them. But his death, I mean, he killed himself. You know? Yeah. He, had a, he was a d- prone to depression. He was on again, off again junkie. Uh, he liked guns. Uh, we prayed that it wouldn't happen. And uh, it, unfortunately, it did. He was in and out of rehab many times. And... Everybody around him tried to introduce him to counselors and get him into 12 steps. He didn't like 12 steps. You know, it's like, I tell you, 12 yeah. steps has saved the lives of many people very, very, very close to me. Yeah. And I admire it so much. And I think that guy was kind of an American saint, Bill Wilson. But it's not for everybody. Right. And there's not a great plan B. No. You know? If people yeah. aren't into that, and John Coltrane just somehow apparently kicked heroin, he went into a room and yeah. did it cold turkey and came out and was John Coltrane until he died of cancer a few years later. Yeah. And there are people who do that, and most people who do it have a 12-step component, and it's tough if people aren't into 12 steps, that what do you tell them to do? Pray, um, get a shrink, um, yeah. 
you just hope that they find some reason not to kill themselves. Yeah, but I, a I, lot of people do kill themselves, and yeah. nobody knows why. I mean, there's psychiatrists and rabbis and priests and philosophers who've been trying to figure this out. And uh, meanwhile, every year, what sixty or seventy thousand Americans kill themselves? Most of them men, half of them with guns. Yeah, it's terrible. You know. Yeah, I I recommend twelve step to people too. Yeah, because it's like, and especially like if you decide to do it. Don't psych yourself out with thinking you have to be sober forever. Like, go in for a week. Right. Stop drinking for a week or stop taking drugs Absolutely. for a week. Absolutely. Go every day and at the end of that week, then see where you're at. Because addiction Correct. is like a cycle. And if you can just... Grace breaks the cycle. And if you can come out of it... But you don't control grace. That's no. the thing about grace is it comes when it comes but you can kind of like roll with it when it yeah. comes, you know, and 12-step can help facilitate that, no, no end. That's as well put as I've ever heard it. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Bill Wilson, funnily enough, was was kind of a, a into LSD. I know? know. Which is interesting. No, I know. Because the big, heavy, big book thumpers would like frown against that, but he was seriously into that. Apparently, Steve Earle, who I've worked with the last... Like I guess we just passed twenty years earlier this year together, and now yeah. he's one a management client. First was on a label I had, and he's working on a memoir. And a part of it is, you know, he's been very publicly talked about that he's in the program. So I'm not busting his anonymity. Right. He's talked about it for years, and he's researched a lot about about just what you were talking about. The LSD it, it's, it's part of what he's what he's writing about. Um, he, he's uh, he's um, uh, he's really tried to learn everything he can about Bill Wilson because he feels so grateful you know mm -hmm. for that uh concept yeah has he ever gone to akron where it all started i don't think that's so. where i'm from oh way. is that right yeah i'm from the homeland huh i didn't know which that. is a, kind of a special place and it, that's the same place chrissy hyde is from yeah and yeah. the black keys we all went yeah. to the same high school wow yeah and that's... lebron james Wow. It's from Akron. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so look out. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> but have you ever considered microdosing mushrooms or anything like that? Have you ever tried that? I haven't tried it. I haven't ruled it out. It's it's real interesting. Yeah. I'm talking about like taking a small piece. Yeah, yeah. You don't even barely feel it. It yeah. just elevates your, your perception to a degree. I'm open to it. I, Try I, that with writing. Yeah. A lot of my friends are into it. I'll, um, it's an off mic conversation yeah it's becoming legal yeah though, no it's everywhere. becoming legal i know yeah. it's harvard is doing studies <laughs> yeah, on it now yeah. it's like it's 50 becoming, years later yeah. yeah uh yeah i'm open to it um uh i haven't done it but i'm i remember my friends are into it and i and i'm i'm open to it yeah well there's so much we can cover but there's like not that much time I know. so it's like because we've got you know there's artemis and all that kind of stuff yeah but yeah um, do you have any final questions for Danny? We got to let him go. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I was just curious. I was in the office when you were not here. There's yeah, like yeah. that letter on the wall that Kurt wrote to Juliana. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on, in it he says, you could explain what's behind it, but he says as long as I've, I've known Danny Goldberg, he's a great guy, as long as he's in our life, we'll be okay. No, it's very sweet. That's the same period of time probably when he did that interview with John Savage because I was at yeah. Atlantic by then. What happened is, you had asked me earlier, is I, I, when I went to work for Atlantic, my deal with, with the company was that I could continue 
um, to be a co-manager of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And that was in everybody's interest. That was my whole brand was I was the Nirvana guy. That's what they were buying. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time we was trying to sign artists that were in that then commercial genre. It was turned out to be a brief period, but yeah. And and um, and and my the relationship with Kurt. So I continued to be play that role in the business stuff for him. When he had certain issues, he just would want to talk to me about it. But um, and then when I was at Atlantic, I was I was always thinking of I wanted to sign things that he thought were cool. That's why I signed the Melvins, and he produced the Melvins record. And you know, uh, I didn't know he he would be into so Juliana. Hatfield was on a label called Mammoth. One of the first deals. My job was to bring, you know, alternative rock to Atlantic. They had the Lemonheads. They had a couple of bands in that lane, but they were they were behind Geffen and Warner Brothers in the alternative rock space, and that was kind of my first task. And so I bought a, a label called Mammoth Records that had Juliana on it, and she put out this album, and and uh, she had a song called Nirvana on on the record because she loved him so much and then she had this great song called my sister which was kind of the mtv song (laughs) and so um i didn't know any and 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 so then um after he died juliana shared with me a fax that kurt had sent her there was no internet you know internet was just starting Mm -hmm. so the big thing was faxes Kurt loved faxing Mm because he didn't want to wait for a letter to be delivered and there was no nobody was doing email yet so he is a lot of Kurt faxes in his own handwriting and and he sent her one because um she had come to see a show of his and he felt bad that he hadn't been nice enough this is this guy was the sweetest guy yeah. in the world. You know, his darkness was all interdirected. Yeah. He couldn't have been more considerate and sweet to other people. So, so it bothered him that he had been uh, just said hi and hadn't schmoozed her or made her feel good. So he wrote her. He sent her this fax, um, and in it he mentioned um, he knew that her record was coming out via Atlantic that I was by then running or involved with. I forget whether I'd president yet or still just the NR dude. And uh, he said a couple of nice sentences about me and she said, I thought you'd want to see this. So, um, you know, after, after he died, you know, it obviously loomed larger as a thing, as, a, as an artifact of him, you know. So I didn't know at the time that he had written it, but after he died, she sent that to me and I've always treasured it because it's such a yeah, nice funny. of him to have said that about me in writing. And it's not like he told me he did it. You know, yeah. it was just, he. it's the same as the John Savage thing. He didn't say, hey man, I just said a, yeah. I said this thing to John, you know, it was just, he, that was his thing about me. And yeah, he had a I lot can't thank him you. enough. He, I mean, yeah. he did a lot more for me than I did for him, but I was there for him any way I could be mm-hmm. that I knew of consciously. And I, I hope the book reflects and shines a light on his creative side, his humor, his warmth. You can't deny his dark side. He killed himself. Yeah, and his music was I, full I, of that darkness. Yeah, too. yeah, I don't, I don't sugarcoat that. But I just, it's like I try to shine the light more on that side of him than than I think some of the other um, media about him does. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the idea of the book was to just kind of a little more of a romanticized just focus on his greatness like i always say like look jimmy hendrix killed himself i don't know whether it was intentional or not but he died the same age yeah by his own hand it was heroin instead of you know instead of a gun but 
but I, when I think of Hendrix, I think of his guitar solos. Yeah. I don't think of his death. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think when, when a, a lot of fans of Nirvana, I think they think of those unplugged and in utero and come yeah. as you are and smells like teen spirit and all apologies and, you know, his cover of the Bowie song, um, mm-hmm. Man Who Sold the World and, and that voice you know incredible and that, voice and that uh, that uh, I mean to talk to the engineers who made the records you know I talked to Butch Vig who did Nevermind mm. and, and Scott Litt who remixed um, In, In Utero, Utero and who did Unplugged he says you know, he says we did nothing it, that was how he sounded yeah <laughs> he, he's, and the sound man too I talked to who was their sound man for the first 80% of their crew was a guy named Craig Montgomery. He ended mm. up getting fired six months before Kurt died, but he did like hundreds and hundreds of shows. He says, my job was to make sure people could hear him sing. Right. That, that was the whole job. It was like, people, all of his other qualities were so amazing as a songwriter, producer, a conceptualizer yeah. of rock. Artist. Activist, supporter of other artists. But, on top of that, and he was a very good guitar player. He was the lead guitar player oh, was, in Nirvana. He was great. Great guitar you player. Know, great solos. But, but but if he only sang, he would have been a star just as a singer. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, and 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 his voice. Moved. So I just wanted to shine a light on the side of him that I knew. It was not the only side of him, and there's 50 different versions of Kurt. He was a complicated guy, but I tried to just uh, mem- remember him as best I could with the help of the people I worked with at the time, and I loved him. You know, I really loved him. Mm-hmm. What a guy. I love the title of it too, the book. Oh, serving thanks. The, serving the servant. How'd yeah. you come up with that? I mean, I know he's got the song. Well, you know how it is. I mean, trying to think of a good title. Yeah. And uh, I just was in a panic. Of what's the title? I had other working titles that I knew weren't good. And then I, so I figured, well, song titles are always good. My mm-hmm. previous book, I ripped off a song title, In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967, and they yeah. had the idea. So I just went through, I'm going through all the songs. I see Serving the Servant, Serve the Servants, which is the lead track on In Utero. Mm-hmm. And I thought I could turn into Serving the Servant, which was both an homage to that song. Yeah. I love In Utero. It's my favorite Nirvana It's my record. favorite, too. And I also thought, I, you know, and I put this in the book, I said, you know, that he was the servant of a muse that only he could hear, but that he could then translate for so millions of people could, mm. could hear it. And then people who worked for him just our job was to try to serve him i mean he was the genius he did everything in nirvana no disrespect obviously dave grohl's incredibly talented chris novacella talented and one of the great human beings ever but kurt wrote the lyrics and the music yeah. the guitar player and the lead singer storyboarded all the videos designed the album covers and yeah. made every single decision yeah so you know i'm just saying he was that guy and uh, everybody else's job and i think Chris, I think, would say the same thing. He knew him from high school. You know, it was how do you you help him do his thing? And to me, it kind of defined what the idea was of being a manager, you know? So, and it just, I thought, and I couldn't think of a better title. You know, it's titles are... It's hard. You know? You get a good one. But you get a good one. It's so helpful. Yeah, another interesting thing on that John Savage interview was him saying, like, it was a foreshadowing because he said, you know, I'd like to do something where me and Dave switch places. He says that in the interview. Like well, one, he one told time. me. So that was interesting because I was like, damn, he saw what Dave Grohl was capable Listen, of. Listen, man, I then. wish I had seen it. I always yeah, joke, if yeah. I had known how talented Dave Grohl was, I would have hung out with him a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was so obsessed with the singer. You know, that's right. my thing, is hang out with the singer, singer and songwriter. That was a bit of a mistake. But, but Kurt told me he was a great singer. Yeah. Kurt said, you don't understand, I hear him singing harmony. Mm-hmm. He's great. 
and uh, and I, I I didn't know what Kurt meant until later. Right. But Kurt knew. No, Kurt, he's listen. He had his problems. Yeah. Obviously, but he was one of the smartest in the rock world. One of the greats. He was oh, on that short list with Dylan, Springsteen, Lennon. Yeah. He's on that Bob Marley. He's on that list. He was a fucking real life genius. I mean, he got me to write songs. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's when I, I was a bass player, and then Nirvana came out, and I oh, was wow. like, holy shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. one of my biggest influences. Oh, wow! I, I we never talked about that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, he was uh, he was the real deal. Anyway, well, we, yeah, we're, we're good. Re- I'm so, I yeah. hate to cut it off, but I no. I think thanks for doing waiting. this, Danny. Yes. Thank you for yeah. really really appreciate right, it. I'll, I'll wrap this up. Thank you. Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated. <laughs>